The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 40. We're back in Atlanta in the early 1900s, and this one is a doozy. Today's episode is on the Atlanta Ripper. You might be familiar with the name Wayne Williams, or the Atlanta child murders case that occurred in the late 1970s, early 1980s. But did you know that there was another serial killer in Atlanta that predated that case by 65 years? At least 20 African American women, all of whom were young, were murdered between 1911 and 1915, their throats cut, and nearly all of the victims sustained crippling head injuries from blunt objects. No one was ever truly found guilty of these murders that are mainly thought to have been the work of the city's very first serial killer. Eventually, local publications started calling this murderer the Atlanta Ripper. But before we dive into the details of the case and the murders, I want to give a brief history about Atlanta because it's important as the backdrop to where these murders took place. Atlanta was established in 1837 as the terminus of the Western and Atlantic Railroad Line. Originally named Marthasville in honor of the then-governor's daughter, it was later given the nickname Terminus due to its rail position. Atlanta, the feminine of Atlantic, as in the railroad, was later chosen as the city's new name. Atlanta's economy, in contrast to other Georgian cities at the time, was driven by the railway business. The result was that, unlike many other southern cities, Atlanta never had a sizable slave population. The city expanded swiftly because it was one of the few sites in the south that did provide manufacturing jobs. Around 8,000 people called Atlanta home at the start of the Civil War when General William Tecumseh Sherman arrived in the city in 1864, there were around 20,000 residents because of its function as a medical hub. Sherman ordered Atlanta to be torched as part of his strategy to suppress the Confederacy's resistance. But after the war, the city quickly rebuilt, and its population surpassed that of the time before the war. Atlanta was the economic center of the South by the 1880s, and Black populations, as well as their influence in society, politics, and the economy, were growing. Alonzo Herndon, a barber by trade, was well on his way to becoming the first Black millionaire in the city. He did this by first buying up homes and businesses, and then he and his partner founded the Atlanta Life Insurance Company. 
Newspapers published various unfounded and gory detailed accounts of the alleged rapes of four local women by black men on the evening of September 22, 1906. This sparked violent attacks by armed mobs of white Americans against African Americans in Atlanta, Georgia. The violence continued until September 24, 1906. Officially, at least 25 African Americans and two white people died during the violence. The Atlanta History Center claims that some black Americans were murdered by being shot, beaten, or stabbed to death, while others were hung from lampposts. When the white mobs entered the black neighborhoods, they attacked the residents and destroyed their homes and businesses. Newspaper accounts of four white women being raped in separate occurrences reportedly by African-American men served as the immediate cause of the violence. Two African-Americans were later charged with raping Ethel Lawrence and her aunt by a grand jury. Growing racial tension in a city and economy that were changing quickly, as well as competition for employment, housing, and political influence, were all contributing factors. After Governor Joseph Terrell dispatched the Georgia National Guard, the rioting finally subsided. The Atlanta Police Department and certain guardsmen were accused by African Americans of actually taking part in the violence against them. Despite the Jim Crow South's racial segregation, which had led to the riots in 1906, and other acts of racial violence, Atlanta's African-American neighborhoods came together as a close-knit community that was home to small businesses, working families, and cultural and religious institutions. But the bodies of black women started turning up in the historic Old Fourth Ward, starting in 1909. Some of them shot in the head, while others suffered blunt force trauma. The buildup of bodies, almost one a month, created a great deal of terror in the neighborhood, particularly as the subsequent rounds of murders began. Although it's impossible to state with absolute precision when the killing began and who the first victim was, the body of 23-year-old Maggie Brooke was discovered on Monday, October 3, 1910, at the intersection of Hill Street and the Atlanta and West Point Railroad track. Maggie was a cook and her skull had been fractured. Rosa Trice, age 35, was attacked on Saturday, January 22, 1911. The body was in such a terrible condition that it would serve as the benchmark for the severity of violence that the Ripper would inflict on subsequent victims. Rosa's throat was so severely slashed that her head was almost completely severed from her neck, and the left side of her skull was completely crushed. She was dragged a short distance from her house while suffering a stab wound to the jaw. Her husband was detained for her murder two hours after her body was discovered, but he was released the next day due to a lack of evidence. The next body discovered was that of an unnamed black female who was found in the woods on February 19, 1911, by the West Point Belt car line just outside the city limits. Her head had been smashed in and she was probably only around 25 years old. Her torso was covered with broken beer bottles 
and it was thought that she had died on either uh, Friday, February 17th, or Saturday, February 18th. The next discovery would come on the evening of Saturday, May 27th, 1911. Mary Bell Walker was coming home after finishing her shift as a cook at a house on Cooper Street. Her sister found her bed empty the next morning and began to frantically search the home. But Bell would be discovered in an old field at the back of the house, with her throat slashed. According to Ranker, the white-owned and staffed media didn't even start covering these horrific murders afflicting Atlanta's African-American community until Bell Walker's murder. We'll get into a little bit more detail about it later, but the newspapers were not friendly to the African-American communities, and their coverage would be less than helpful during the investigation. The next discovery would be that of Addie Watts' horribly decomposed body on June 15, 1911, not far from the Southern Railway. Her head was entirely crushed in by a coupling pin from a train that authorities later discovered nearby. Her body had been carried close to the railway tracks where her throat had been brutally slashed. The local newspapers didn't start making assumptions about the possibility of a lone, isolated killer preying on the city's young black women until Addie Watts was found. According to Johnston for Medium.com, the Atlanta Journal published a headline on June 16, 1911, the day following the murder of Addie Watts, asking whether a, quote, black butcher was at work in the city. The initial connection between the Atlanta killings and those that took place in London in the autumn of 1888, where five prostitutes were savagely stabbed to death and dismembered by the notorious Jack the Ripper, was first made in this short piece, only four paragraphs long. The authorities, as stated in the article, were promoting the hypothesis that Atlanta had an insane criminal, something along the order of the famed Jack the Ripper. The homicides, according to the rival Atlanta Constitution, were individual, unconnected instances. So we had two competing theories being promoted by the newspapers, one of a serial killer and the other of just a series of unconnected murders. Lizzie Watkins, a resident of West Oakland Street, was the next victim on Saturday, June 24, 1911. The following day, around 11 a.m., she was discovered at White and Lawson Streets. Like Addie Watts, she had been found among a group of shrubs. Lizzie had also suffered a deadly injury to her throat, and her body had been carried to that location where it was discovered. Again, according to Johnston for Medium.com, following the death of Lizzie Watkins, the crimes appeared on the Atlanta Journal's top page. The similarities between the victims and the killings were brought up, as well as the fact that young black or multiracial women had been slain five Saturdays running. Through these accounts, the general public learned for the first time that the victims had all appeared to have been choked into unconsciousness prior to being abused and killed, and that identical parts of their bodies had been damaged in each case. Although the victims of the Atlanta Ripper were not raped, their injuries seemed to be of a sexual nature. 
similar to Jack the Ripper, Atlanta newspapers asserted that the local murderer had to have known something about anatomy. Lena Sharp, 40 years old, was killed on Saturday, July 1st, 1911, and this provided the first breakthrough or lead in the investigation. According to Oxygen, when Lena didn't come home from the market, her daughter, Emma Lou, became worried. According to the Atlanta Constitution, their neighbor, Addie Watts, had been killed only a few weeks earlier. When Emma Lou went to look outside for her mother, a tall black man approached her and confronted her. Before stabbing her in the back and fleeing, the man said, quote, I never hurt girls like you. And later, her mother's body would be discovered close by with her throat slashed. According to a different story from the Atlanta Journal, Lena and Emma Lou were walking out together when a black man hit Lena in the head with a rock before stabbing Emma Lou, who attempted to get away but passed out. Before returning to Emma Lou, who had regained consciousness and saw the killer standing over her with a knife, he sliced Lena's throat. He only fled when he heard footsteps approaching. Despite these two versions of the story, in either case, Emma Lou was able to identify the murderer as a tall, slim, black man. And whichever version happens to be true, Emma Lou was stabbed, and Lena Sharp was actually killed and dangerously close to being decapitated. Her body was discovered by the seaboard railway tracks. L.L. Lee, an undertaker, offered a $25 reward for information leading to the arrest of Lena Sharp's killer. Additionally, Mr. Lee asked other black company owners to contribute to the reward money in order to boost its appeal and ideally persuade locals to help the police catch the criminal. Mary Yeldell, age 22, was walking home from her job as a cook at the 4th Street house of Mr. and Mrs. Seltzer on Saturday, July 8, 1911. She stopped as she was passing an alley after hearing a whistle. She subsequently recalled that a large black man was approaching her with a cat-like gait. He was tall and well-built. Screaming, she fled back to the Seltzer residence, where Mr. Seltzer took his revolver and went to the alley. Unexpectedly, the man was still there, although he did flee down the alley when Mr. Seltzer warned him to raise his hands or risk being shot. And despite being called, the police don't find anything. The next victim is Sadie Hawley, and Henry Huff is quickly taken into custody by police. Witnesses report seeing Huff with Sadie the night of the murder. Police saw that he had scratches on him and was dressed in bloody clothes when he was apprehended. He had a gash on his head as well. Huff stated that it was a fight at a pool room that was the cause of the blood and marks. Todd Henderson is another man that's taken in for questioning. He was identified by Emma Lou as the person who stabbed her and probably killed her mother. But Emma didn't really name him. When asked if he was the man she saw, she said, to the best of my knowledge. Although the police only had circumstantial evidence to support their cases against Henderson and Huff, they turned them over anyways to the prosecution in hopes that a grand jury would decide which man should be tried with Sadie's murder. It's after this that a $250 
reward is later announced by the governor for the arrest of the Atlanta Ripper. Despite the fact that two men were in custody, the murders continued. Nevertheless, the cops kept arresting suspects, and things just got worse. The mutilations on the victims started. Minnie Wise's finger had been cut from its middle joint when she was discovered in the autumn. The worst of all was when an unnamed woman's head was discovered almost completely separate from her body. She had also been disemboweled, and her heart had been removed. Charles Owens was eventually found guilty of committing one of the murders associated with the Ripper, and was given a life term in prison. However, the papers did not specify which murder he was found guilty of. Despite this, the murders still continued. Police would detain Henry Brown in August of 1912 for the murder of Eva Lawrence. His wife alleged that he routinely returned home on the weekends wearing bloodstained clothes. According to reports, he even gave police specifics about some of the murders. However, a witness stood up and claimed that Brown had been forced into a confession by the police, and after that, he was freed. In March of 1914, firefighters began noticing letters tacked to fireboxes all across the city. They appeared to all be signed by Jack the Ripper and threatened to cut the throats of all Negro women who were outside after a particular time in the evening. Three false alarm calls were made to the fire station house too, which were thought to have been triggered by the murderer to draw attention to the letters. It's still unclear if any of these incidents actually involved the Atlanta Ripper or were just cruel jokes. There were undoubtedly many murders between 1910 and 1924, but not all of them can be definitively connected to the Atlanta Ripper. Some of the murders that were initially attributed to the elusive killer or killers were probably not theirs. The last murder he is thought to have definitely committed was in 1914 with Mary Rowland. However, many others think that the killings could have continued until 1924. The victims of the Atlanta Ripper never received the respect they deserved because of the prejudice and segregation that prevailed at this time in the South. The media was highlighting a number of robberies that were occurring in wealthy white neighborhoods at the same time of the Atlanta Ripper murders. So it just shows that the numerous death of black women in Atlanta was surpassed by a few robberies of wealthy white people. Most people now think that there were probably more than one murderer at work throughout the years, and others could have used the media coverage of the Atlanta Ripper to commit their own violent crimes. To this day, no one knows exactly who the Atlanta Ripper was, or even how many women he murdered. And that's it for another episode of Historical True Crime. We hope you've enjoyed our episode on the Atlanta Ripper. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of a case you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.